Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I am your host, Dr. M, and this is podcast number 45. This week's guest is super interesting. Brianna Pobiner, PhD, is a paleoanthropologist, that's a tongue twister, a paleoanthropologist whose research centers on the evolution of human diet with a focus on meat eating. You knew this would be clearly something I'd be very interested in when it comes to the evolution of human food eating. Dr. Pobiner received her Bachelor's of Arts from Bryn Mawr College, where she created her own major called Evolutionary Studies. Then she completed a master's degree, followed by her PhD in anthropology from Rutgers University. Dr. Pobiner is also an associate research professor of anthropology in the Center for the Advanced Study of Human Paleobiology at the George Washington University. She has done lots of field work in countries like Kenya, Tanzania, South Africa, and Indonesia. She's been supported by research grants from the Fulbright Hayes Program, the Leakey Foundation and National Geographic Society, as well as the National Science Foundation, the Society for American Archaeology, the Smithsonian Institution, and the Wenner Gren Foundation. She has been at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. since 2005. She has been instrumental in putting together a Hall of Human Origins project, which has helped us as humans see where our human origins come from specifically. And there are multiple different researchers involved in this project, but she is the head of it. She is involved in making sure that the public programs, the website content, and all of the uh, exhibit training is well, car- well curated and cared for. She has received multiple awards over her career, including a 2021 National Center for Science Education Friend of Darwin Award. For me, though, as always, a researcher like Dr. Pobiner is a favorite because of the desire to onion peel, to look deep into the past, into history, to find out why we are who we are, why we do what we do as a human species. And so this conversation, like many others in the past, hinges upon looking at the data where it exists in our past to give us answers as to why we do what we do now. We don't get into the specifics of why humans should or shouldn't eat meat, you know, nutritional recommendations, all that stuff, because it's out of the lane that she considers comfortable to talk about. But we can look back in order to understand the future, understand the present as it relates to human nutritional observations. And from that perspective, this conversation is one that I really enjoyed. And she comes loaded with data points from the past. And we get into that and we have some really fun conversations around working in the field, which I also find super fascinating. So with that, here is my conversation with Dr. Brianna Povener. Well, welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First Podcast, Brianna Pobiner. I am so excited to have you on the show from Silver Springs, D.C. and the Smithsonian. You come loaded with an incredible amount of information that I'm so excited to get into. So welcome. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It is my pleasure. All right. Dive in by talking about a piece you wrote in 2013 in the journal Nature Education, And you wrote, the diet of the earliest hominins was probably somewhat similar to the diet of modern chimpanzees, omnivorous, including large quantities of fruit, leaves, flowers, bark, insects, and meat. 
Tooth morphology and dental microwear studies suggest that the diet of some hominins may have included hard food items such as seeds and nuts and underground storage organs such as roots and tubers. By at least 2.6 million years ago, a remarkable expansion in this diet started to occur. Some hominins began incorporating meat and marrow from small to very large animals into their diet. So we're gonna explore the evidence that you've discovered over your career for the dramatic shifts and you put in here five W's, the when, the where, the who, the what, and the why. And then you have a little parentheses for and the how. And the how. So you're a paleoanthropologist. Your research centers on evolution of the human diet with a focus specifically on meat eating, which is one of the reasons I was really excited to have you on the show. And so let's start. Describe your background, how you got to be a seeker of truth regarding humans and what they decided to eat, specifically animals. Sure. So um, my background is that I, I'll start with um, before I became a paleoanthropologist. So I, I did my undergraduate degree at Bryn Mawr College. And when I started, I thought I might want to be an English major or study comparative literature. I was really into writing and poetry. And then I took an anthropology class my first semester and I went, oh, the study of people is really fascinating. Um, I still thought maybe I was more of a humanities person than a science person. And then my second semester, I took a class called Primate Evolution and Behavior. And that was it. I just thought I'm really interested in human prehistory, um, sort of took a left turn and deviated down that road ever since. Um, after my third year of college, I went on a paleoanthropology field school in South Africa, realized that I love doing field work, digging up fossils, and I started to get interested in questions about early human diet and, you know, what any organism eats is such a fundamental part of like what, you know, who it is, what makes it up, what, what, what uh, makes it, you know, that, that thing. Um, and so, you know, the diet of our ancestors is such an important part of shaping their lives, but also how we got to who we are today. Yeah. And, and I like to say, you know, my favorite guests are anthropologists because the past teaches us our reality. And if we don't learn from the past or spend time looking at the past, I think we're missing out on so much information and I think to your point, what you're digging up, actually digging up, is is answers as to you know what is going on in the history of humanity. So let's start there. What are the earliest historical knowns? When did we start to see a shift in dietary consumption from what was perceived to be mostly tubers and plant-based to all of a sudden maybe we're now eating meat and then we can get into the why? Sure. So um, the when is by at least... Um, as of last month, a couple of weeks ago, 2.9 million years ago. So um, interesting new discoveries from Western Kenya. The earliest evidence for butchery marked animal fossils. So animal fossils that we know that early humans ate basically um, potentially goes back to 3.3 million years. That evidence is a little bit contested, but certainly by just after 3 million years ago, we do see this shift where early humans are starting to incorporate meat from big animals in their diet. So that 2.9 million year evidences of hippos that were butchered by early humans in Western Kenya. Um, so it was, that was a significant shift. It looks like at about 2 million years, there's also another shift to this behavior becoming a little more common. So between about three and two million years, we sort of see a couple of fossils here, maybe one animal there, maybe one or two that were butchered at these um, archaeological sites. 
But at two million years ago, we see we have a an archaeological site where I've I've studied the fossils from that have multiple layers of many um, individual animals that have butchery marks on them. So people seem to be um, basically bringing these animals back to some sort of home base or central place to butcher them over and over again. And these three layers that have those butchery marked fossils span maybe up to a thousand years. So the behavior starts, it happens frequently, then it becomes more common. Um, Later on, we have shifts to things like um, really being able to hunt animals successfully, pick and choose what species and individuals you want. But probably in the beginning, this meat and marrow eating was much more about scavenging and sort of taking what you could than about hunting and being very picky. Yeah, I would think if your hippo is the first choice of an animal you're going after, there's a lot of people that were dead before that one actually came to pass as, as a winning suggestion. <laughs> Potentially. And certainly, you know, um, I don't think three and a half feet tall early humans without good evidence for hunting technology in the archaeological record are taking down hippos. They are the most dangerous animals in Africa today. Um, right. So exactly. So I think probably there's a lot of scavenging going on in the beginning of incorporating those animal resources into our diets. Yeah. And, and so when humans first made this shift, the reason being for the shift, and I know you talked a bit about expensive tissue hypothesis, you talked about, you know, there is a, a potentially there's an evolutionary advantage to eating animal products. Go down that road. Yeah. So, I mean, it's funny, as scientists, I, as, especially as scientists who studies the past, I, I always get a little antsy with the why questions. Right. You know, in some ways we can never answer that. We can maybe answer the how, but yep. um, there are different hypotheses that have been proposed. One is that there were big global um, climate changes where there are were areas that were more forested that were kind of drying up, becoming more open savanna with more animals. And so maybe it was just there were more animals around. Um, maybe it was um, the watching other predators um, eat their prey. And when they the predators moved off going, okay, I have like a broken rock or something with a sharp edge that like I can now come in and eat some of this. So it's hard to know why it started, but certainly there seems to be some potential advantages to, you know, anytime you incorporate a new food source, I think it's, is an advantage of mitigating against environmental and climate changes, you know, against just sort of your environment changing, your preferred food may be, you know, disappearing or becoming seasonally less available. So there's, there's a variety of different reasons. You mentioned the expensive tissue hypothesis. So this is an idea that um, our brains as humans are very energetically expensive. They take up about 2% of our body weight. They use at least 20% of our energy. As babies, they use more than 50% of our energy. So they're like energy hog organs. Why would there be an evolutionary advantage to evolving such an expensive organ? Um, there are ideas about why there were might have been selection pressure for big brains. They're really good with planning and communication and sophisticated thought and all of the complex social interactions that make up our daily lives today. But there's an idea that meat as a concentrated source of protein and calories may have kind of released a constraint on the ability to grow those big brains um, and that meat eating was important in our evolutionary history for that reason. 
interestingly, the timing of when we see a big increase in brain size doesn't coincide with the earliest meat eating. So as I mentioned before, three-ish million years ago is when we see that. We don't see a big increase in brain size compared to body size through time until about a million years ago. So the expensive tissue hypothesis doesn't seem to hold up anymore. It's still kind of an interesting idea of, of you know, thinking about what what was the the sort of spark that lit the ability of early humans to grow big brains. And I gave it away a little bit. One idea might be actually control of fire and cooking. Uh, that's what I was going to ask you if you were going to, because that might make it such that you are le more likely to consume the animal product in a way that's not dangerous for, because infection was the number one reason people died in those days. I spoke with Rick Johnson um, last year and he is a re is a kidney specialist, but his, work was around the uricase mutation and how the uricase mutation allowed uric acid levels to rise in primates and humans and frankly most animals and the the selective pressure that allowed that to occur was the fact that the ice age started coming in so any animal that had low uric that the uricase mutation wasn't there they died out and so i i always think from this perspective that yeah th that would be fascinating to know if that was the and again, i don't know how you'd prove that um in a world where fire was the big piece that came back into play to help humans grow bigger brains and live longer was it the reduction in infection that you were getting from consuming animal products that's a well, fascinating it's a it's a really interesting idea the the one of the tricky parts about testing that hypothesis is that it's not easy to find evidence for early fires um you know natural wildfires can kind of mimic human made fires and so you really need to find hearths or campfires that were, you know, deep in caves or somewhere that we know that it wasn't a natural fire setting or, you know, evidence of fire with lots of tools or fossil bones that were burned left behind. So I think the, the bar for evidence is pretty high, but I think it's certainly really interesting. And there's definitely advantages to eating cooked food, like you said, making food palatable that would have been poisonous, um, you know, allowing people to get more um, nutrients out of food um, or just to be able to physically process it um, once it's cooked. So there were potentially some really significant advantages. Right. And, I, and, I, I, and again, since we're talking mostly about paleontology and bones, you really couldn't tell if people were drinking the blood and all the other nutrients that they're getting from the animal. I mean, I've done a recently a big dive into yeah, aging. And when you look at aging, there's some work that a bunch of folks are doing, especially a recent interviewee, Kara Fitzgerald, looking at the epigenetics of, of certain types of foods. And one of the fascinomas is the liver is a big what's called a methyl donor. And so it gives these special carbon atoms of three hydrogens that help the DNA work appropriately. And so, I, you know, I, I always find this all to be plausible and mechanistically plausible, which is why I really appreciate your your view on this, because again, having a mechanism doesn't prove causation, but boy, if you can start putting it all together in a linear path, it makes a lot more sense until somebody proves that we're wrong. I think this is the pathway to stay on hypothetically. And so, you, you know, you've done work. What is the evidence, you know, when we think about, you know, hunting and fishing, do we have good evidence that, you know, I know, I know we have the, the bone marks, but do we have evidence looking at tools that were involved in actually hunting? So, you know, wh when did that all start? Spears, harpoons? 
Yeah, great question. So the earliest hunting technology that I think is really solid evidence is only about half a million years old. Um, and they are spear points from a site called Katupan in South Africa. The reason that we know that they're spear points is they have these um, little micro breakages on the tips of the spears called diagnostic impact fractures. And um, archaeologists have done experiments recreating these tools, using them as hunting weapons, and they break in the same way. Um, so really before about half a million years ago, the kinds of stone tools that early humans were making were Basically, they were picking up naturally round rocks and using them to break open bones to get the marrow inside. They were picking up rocks with angles and knocking off sharp flakes, basically kind of sharp stone knives um, that they were probably using to do a variety of things, cutting meat off of bones, cutting carcasses apart to transport them to get them out of danger's way in order to eat somewhere that's more safe, but probably also using these tools to like sharpen sticks that maybe we don't have in the archaeological record. Very possible that the earliest tools could have been wooden spears, but those are really hard to preserve compared to things like bones and stone tools. Yeah, and I would think of the the spears, especially for fish, because of the reality that what did humans need often is water, right? And water for drinking, but also what a great resource for quick energy if you could catch the fish. And so Absolutely. spears would have made the most sense. And potentially even like some kind of nets or other ways that, you know, people may have been fishing. Interestingly, the earliest good evidence we have for cooking goes back, as I mentioned, about a million years ago. Um uh, for, uh, from a site in South Africa, um, but there's a, a nearly 800,000 year old site in Israel called Gesher Benat Yaakov. And last year, a paper came out that um, it's the earliest evidence for cooking is actually cooking fish from this site that is affectionately nicknamed GBY. Um, and it's basically roasting the bones of fish. So with fish, you don't necessarily need to like butcher them with a stone tool. So you're less likely to find butchery marks, but finding them in the context of where we know they were cooked is really interesting. And what were you at that site? Nope, I have never been there, but I'm, I find the evidence pretty interesting. So give me a story because I'm, I'm intrigued by what you do. Tell me a story because I know you do a lot of field work. What does it look yeah. like going into a field and what do you find and what are you doing? Yeah, so the field work that I do, some of it is archaeological excavation. And so that is basically going to a site where either fossils have been found before, artifacts have been found before, and slowly excavating with a you know wonderful team of people um, kind of peeling away the layers of sediment looking for fossils, particularly in my case, fossils of animals that have butchery marks. So we know that they were um, eaten by people and the stone tools that were used to butcher them. Um, and there is nothing to me that is as, as exciting as when I'm on an excavation and we actually, I'm like brushing away with my paintbrush and I find a fossil that has butchery marks on it. It is literally evidence of human behavior from a million, two million years ago. It's like reaching through time and going, nobody has touched this fossil since, you know, some ancestor that wasn't quite like me butchered this animal a million right. years ago. It's amazing. And give us an idea for the depth. How far down are you going to find these bones? Like, are we in caves? Are we, you know, what? where are we looking? 
So mostly I work in open air sites as opposed to caves. Um, and so sometimes they can be five, 10 centimeters below the surface. Sometimes I'm digging a meter, a meter and a half down. So it really all depends on kind of the layer where those um, bones that have now turned to fossils, um, like where that layer is in your um kind of in your stratigraphic section in in the you know the hillside that you might be digging up so sometimes it can be uh you know a couple of weeks to dig down something like that sometimes it takes a couple of field seasons but usually once you get to that layer where you're finding fossils then you start to go a lot more slowly and carefully slowly right yeah. right right and and i would assume caves probably would not be the best place to find bones just because you wouldn't leave tons of discarded bones where you live would that be an appropriate assumption well, not necessarily. And so a lot of um, uh, archaeological sites, particularly in Europe, are cave sites. And sometimes it looks like, you know, early humans and, and like our ancestors and relatives did actually sort of chuck a lot of their garbage into different sections of caves. Um, and I, I guess as long as it wasn't smelly enough to bother people or attract animals, um, then yeah, that is actually sometimes something that people did. I think probably it, particularly in places where caves were only used seasonally, they weren't necessarily used year round, um, that it was, you know, you go to a place, you butcher animals here, and maybe you're actually like only butchering animals in one place. Maybe you're hanging out and doing other activities in another place. Is there any competing forces or intellectual conversation against these theories, right? Now, we haven't talked about this, but I'm guessing there's not. But is there anything where somebody's saying this doesn't make sense, it shouldn't have happened this way? Um, I think it's more of the details than the overarching theory where there's, you know, um, let's just say stimulating intellectual discussion in the field. Um, right. And also thinking about what, you know, humans, modern humans are omnivores. I think we've been omnivores through our entire evolutionary history, but questions about like, when did we start eating different kinds of food? How did those percentages shift? How can we possibly see that in the archeological record? What about things that are really hard to detect like eating insects or, you know, digging for tubers? How, like, how do we incorporate those into our models. And so, um, so I don't think there's much um, sort of completely competing hypothesis going like, no, humans weren't eating meat because we, we do right. have hard evidence of that. Right. And I know, you know, I, I've heard people say, you know, like chimpanzees are frugivores. And then I know there, you know, there's been some data looking at stool records and finding that the bacteria in the stool records are ones that are not related, uh, you know, specifically related only to plant-based. So there's some stool records stating that, okay, so, so our, our closest relatives were eating meat, whatever, how much volume, no I, idea. Well, and actually there's even good observations by people who study chimps behaviorally that chimpanzees definitely eat meat and that um, like on average among all chimp communities, about 3% of their food comes from meat and they can be really good hunters of small arboreal so like tree living monkeys that live in the areas where chimps live as well and in fact there are even some forests um, where chimps have been hunting 
um, species like red colobus monkey so much that those colobus monkey populations are decreasing. So wow. we do have good evidence. And in fact, one of the um, studies I did as a graduate student was studying a collection of colobus monkey bones that chimpanzees had eaten, because I'm interested also in using that as a model for what would it look like if our ancestors were eating small animals? What would their tooth marks and chewing patterns look like? Fascinating. Is there any evidence, and and I, I ask this question naively, um, is there any evidence that the consumption of animal products helped pregnancies do come to term better? I know, you know, B12 and choline are massively important in methylation. We know they're involved in neural tube defects from the pediatrician side of my heart. That's where I start to think. Do we have any evidence that there was an improvement in species um, uh, you know, the ability to get pregnant and go to term by the consumption of animal practices are, uh, uh, you know, I guess this is a, that's the basic question. That's a good question. And I don't know that we have evidence either way for that, because I'm trying to figure out what kind of evidence would we be able to look for in the fossil record for that. Um, I can't think of how we might be able to evaluate that kind of hypothesis. It's certainly an interesting question. I know some of the folks that study chimps are very interested in that, that you know, the, there's a question like, why hunt monkeys? It's actually really energetically expensive to do that. They fail a lot of the time. There's like a, you know, a big social ruckus and then nobody catches any monkeys and they, you know, sort of all go off and eat their fruit, I guess. Um, but there is an idea, a hypothesis called the meat scrap hypothesis, the idea that the nutrients that the chimps are getting from meat, including B12, are so valuable that it's still worth doing even if you fail a lot of the time. So, um, but it, I think it's it would be tough to figure out how to evaluate that in the fossil record. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, to, and again, it wouldn't be causative per se, but at least associative that all of a sudden, you know, during that period of time, let's say where fire came in, all of a sudden there was a massive expansion in the number of humans on the planet. Um, you know, maybe yeah. that would be a sign saying, okay, all of a sudden these babies are making a term and they're surviving more. And again, I can't say it's causative because it could be, again, lack of infection because you're eating mm -hmm. meat that's cooked, uh, but just... Just a hypothetical. It, it would be if we had any way to have good population estimates. There are just, I mean, there are, I would say, like six, seven thousand fossil individuals of humans in our like entire, you know, fossil history. But I don't think that's enough to be able to really see the kinds of shifts that you're thinking of either way, whether it happened or not. So we just don't have the data, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's that's always that's always the question is getting causation, <laughs> causation, correlation, and then finally you need the data piece. There, there's there's so much, there's so much there, and when we could find the data, boy, wouldn't that be a beautiful thing to answer some more questions? Because I think there's a lot to be said about this. Just the the anthropologic understanding of the of the the it happened is so important, but also the why. I think it eventually yeah. would be so important to me from my thought process on why I would do anything. I know we are not going to talk specifically about nutritional choices in life and humans, but I think as a human construct, looking at diverse species and how they consume food, it, it, it to me, it lends to multiple thought processes. One is we are unbelievably resilient at eating Absolutely. different types of foods and surviving. I Yes. One of uh, one of the guests that I had on is a specialist in the world of breastfeeding, and she looks at the anthropologic and historical perspective of breastfeeding. And it was absolutely mind blowing to me that if when you study all the diverse diets that the mother was consuming, the breast milk relatively came out the same. 
With yeah, the exception, it's amazing, the, isn't it? Oh, it's un, I mean, that was to me is mind blowing. And, and so I, I think about this in the context of, I don't think there's one diet anyway. I think that's sort of a ridiculous conversation to have, but the diversity of the dietary influences of humans over time is I think the key when we go back and look at something and say, Hey, you know, here's some solid evidence that humans started eating meat three point, how many million years ago. And then it expanded somewhere around 1 million years ago and continued to go from there until we became farmers and all those other things, which of course there expands everything through, through into <laughs> to what we have now, which is probably problems because of that decision to some extent. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I find that all to be super, super fascinating. In, in your research and or, or storytelling, is there anything that you would love to share with the audience? Because again, I, I find everything you've done fascinating. Um, I think stories are always lovely. I know you have an amazing website that people can peruse, but have you, do you have any amazing stories you'd like to share with folks? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I, I always love to share the, a, a story that I already did about like what it's like to find a fossil in the field yeah. that has yeah. these butchery marks on it. Um, and I think, you know, it's it's not only finding fossils in the field. I have been doing more projects recently where I go to museum collections that have been excavated several decades ago and still looking for that kind of butchery mark evidence. And so to me, every time I find that, it's exciting and fascinating and then I can start to look for patterns in the fossil record of you know when do we see shifts in when you know humans are eating more meat getting like having more choice things like that um so yeah I mean those are I think like the the field work and and sort of collections and research stories for me are the most fun to tell yeah. I mean, and, 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 you the, know, not necessarily the stories of like how I almost got trampled by rhinos in the field and that kind of thing. Oh, no, no. We want to hear that stuff. one. <laughs> so, oh, no. Not, you have to tell that now. So, um, so I, uh, my longest term research project is at a, at a place called Olpegeta Conservancy in Kenya. Um, and I started this research project while I was doing my dissertation. What I was doing there is looking to find samples of, um, prey animals that were chewed on by different carnivores, because if I want to understand how humans and carnivores competed over animals in the past, I need to know what carnivores were chewing on those animals that early humans were also butchering. So when we don't find a lot of carnivore fossils, so one way I might be able to do that is by documenting different chewing patterns by carnivores on, you know, different sized animals. So I spent seven months in this wildlife conservancy, basically driving around looking for predators eating things and then picking up the leftovers. Um, and while I was there, I also started a long-term project trying to understand um, basically the, the the modern bone community. So as an archaeologist or a paleontologist, you dig up a fossil site and you go, okay, let's say we find twice as many zebras or zebra relatives as giraffes. Zebras eat grass, giraffes eat trees and leaves. So we reconstruct environments going, maybe there was a lot more grass than there were trees. But there's all these filters that that bone community goes through between the time the animals die and even the bones are sitting on the ground, let alone getting buried and getting fossilized. So I'm interested in figuring out, are there kind of filters and biases in the modern bone community? So I spend time doing this field work, walking around in a wildlife conservancy, 
surrounded by dangerous animals looking for bones. I should mention that I always do this with an armed guard, at least one, um, <laughs> who are the probably the most important part of my research project at that field site, um, keeping me from, from becoming a sample. So one of the most recent times I was out there, we now have a digital data collection system. It's kind of like on an iPad where it's, you know, collecting all this data digitally and I'm looking down, I'm looking at the iPad, I'm trying to walk my straight line north to walk this bone transect. Um, and at some point, the uh, one of the guards who I've been working with for years just sort of starts giggling. And I'm like, what's so funny? And he just points behind me and there's three white rhinos that I've sort of walked right by, didn't realize how close <laughs> I was to them. There's a hilarious picture that one of my colleagues took of me, like saying something that I could never repeat on a podcast. Um, and I just, I was so consumed with sort of what I was doing. And, you know, later on, he was like, don't worry, you were safe. He said, you know, white rhinos are not aggressive. Had that been a black rhino, I would have gotten you out of there a long time ago because they can be quite aggressive. But I've had, I, I, you know, I've had close encounters with elephants, um, with lions doing that research. And I took, my son is now 11 and I took him to the field with me when he was six um, and sometimes to Kenya. And sometimes I ask him like, what does he remember most? And he always makes fun of me for being so scared of the elephants, mom. And, uh, you know, I've had enough close encounters that I have a healthy respect for the largest living mammals. So well, I'll just and, say and, that. And I'll bet that the, the absent professor in you that was walking your spider sense didn't click on because it was white rhinos, right? If it was something predatory, you probably would have turned on. Maybe well, or I would have gotten a you know a signal definitely from the folks who keep me safe. But um, yeah, it was just it was a really funny moment of them going, "Look up, look up, look up!" And what? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I I always wonder if the sixth sense that humans have when dangers around again is something that just was uh, Darwinianly you know put into place over over time. Because if you didn't have that sixth sense, you're a, you're prey, right? Well, so learning we... to have that sixth sense is a good thing. Exactly. I mean, in humans, we are really good at even when there's not danger around seeing danger. So like the rustle in the leaves and the wind and the sounds and the like, what is that? And oftentimes it's nothing. But we I mean, I there's a different kind of alive that I feel doing that field work. It's the like I'm a little bit closer to death than probably I am in my yeah. normal life, although yeah. who knows if I am or not. But just walking around with, you know, in the wild with all these animals is a really um, it's a, you know, kind of hair raising experience. Yeah. And it's a beautiful one to boot. I know the missionary work that I've done and being in the jungles of Ecuador and every ounce of it was a hundred percent exhilarating at times, scary, but eye awakening and, and definitely mind and heart expanding. So you have a website. I, I'm assuming it's run by, um, the Smithsonian, but the human origins is, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So actually, in my job at the Natural History Museum, um, I lead all of the education and out outreach efforts for the Human Origins Program. And one of the things I do is keep the content on our website up to date. So this website is humanorigins.si.edu. Um, one of the tabs on it, you can learn more about me and the other colleagues that work with us in the Human Origins Program. Um, I also have a separate website that is hosted by the Natural History Museum that talks all about my research projects. Um, so those are places where you can kind of learn more about what I'm doing. 
Yeah, and, and for folks listening, if you have teenagers or young kids who are interested in this space in any way, shape, or form, there are lots of pictures. There's cool stuff on this website to to point them towards. So you never know. You might have a, a budding uh, paleoanthropologist in your family or anything along that uh, along that nature, develop some brand new field of study. Who knows? It's just a, it's a beautiful thing. So I have one last question for you. I appreciate every ounce of your time. Um, I asked this of all the guests, and and this is going to be a really interesting one because where you're coming from, right? If you had a golden ticket and you're close to where you could hand that golden ticket in, right? You're there in the Silver Springs area. You can walk over to the White House and hand it to the, uh, the President of the United States or Congress, whichever one you choose, and you could change one thing or ask for one thing to be modified. What would you ask for? And I'll tell you, I'll, I'll while you're thinking, mine is very clear. I would like to see school lunch changed. I think... What we're feeding our children is is an abomination of an industrialized uh, uh, society and that we should be spending much more time feeding our children the most nutritious food we can come up with in a framework that is a healthy setting where they're eating in a calm space. So that's my my take. I would love to see that. So what would you want to see? So I think I would probably want to see a like, I don't know, 10, 20 fold increase in funding for science research. Um, and maybe that's thinking too small even, but I would want to see a huge increase in our investment in, you know, I, I know that applied science is really important, but basic science. Um, I mean, I have colleagues here at the museum who are doing the, at the Natural History Museum, doing the most fascinating, amazing basic science research. And, um, we have a lot of funding constraints. And so that's what I would want to see. I agree with you a hundred percent. One of another, one of the recent guests on the show who is a specialist in protein, just the types of protein, how it works in the body, the biological effects in cells. And he, most of his funding comes from industry. Um, and, and he is a very honorable gentleman. And, you know, we went through a lot of that discussion and he just basically said, I can't get enough funding from the NIH to do yeah. the research in a way that's not quote unquote funded by industry. Now I believe that most of the work he's doing is hundred percent scientifically sound, not colluded or messed up with by the, by the companies. But that, that being said, that does bring in a level of, of potential bias that we don't want to see. So I echo that and being somebody who enjoys using the science that's produced at the clinical level or the bench level, the basic sciences are the building blocks of all of that. If we don't have the basic sciences, we can't even begin the process of building a clinical recommendation as a pediatrician. So we have to have that. And I 100% agree. And I would yeah, and take your ticket and carry it there for you. I, fantastic. I think we should, you know, we never hurts to try and ask. And I think it's also even if, and I agree with you. I mean, I think, you know, there are a lot of wonderful scientists out there who are funded by industry that do really fantastic science, but there's still a perception by yep. the public that, you know, there could be some bias or there could be some influence. And so, you know, I would love to see just a huge investment by um, our government in more science research. Yeah, it's not like we don't have the money. I'm with you on that one. I mean, we're giving hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars to wars and foreign things. So let's let's slow that roll down and put it into places that actually grow society. Yep, 100%. I'm on it with you. So <laughs> Brianna Pobener, thank you. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking your time and just sharing what you do with passion and joy every day and letting the world see what the great work you're doing, but also uh, giving us data pieces that we can utilize in our just our, our 
exploration of our own existence and our life, what we're doing moving forward. So thank you for taking the time. Well, thanks for the invitation. I appreciate it. Have a great day. Thanks, you too. Super, super fascinating conversation for me. You know, I look at all of this information as data points on a continuum of what history has shown us and what it sort of declares for our present state as a species. Her human origins program at the Smithsonian is fabulous. I mean, looking at the data when you go online, listening to her speak, it is quite clear that humans have been eating animal meat, animal products for a long time. Now we're talking millions of years and there are changes along the way, the advent of fire. You know, there's things that happened that clearly changed what we're doing as a species, as far as how we've grown, how we've survived, how we've made this planet our home in a way that's functionally relevant for the species to procreate, grow and survive. We clearly didn't talk about what humans should eat now, right? And that's as stated, not what Dr. Pogbener is an expert in. She's an expert in looking back at the past and deciding what has happened. On the other hand, I feel quite comfortable looking at what humans are doing, have done, and should do, right? And by should, I'm not saying in any way, shape, or form that one diet is technically so much better than another. With the exception of a modern processed westernized diet is terrible. That I'm just going to state flat out clearly. How much meat should humans consume? Should we be vegetarians or vegans? I think there's a lot to be said about that. And if you go back over human history, I don't think there's a historical precedent to be a human and not consume animal products at all. I think that's a modern construct. And frankly, it's capable of being done now because we have supplements. In the absence of that, I think people would be in big trouble with not having enough choline and B12 in their diet. That being said, if you look at sort of where the people live the longest on the planet and you look at Dan Buettner's book, The Blue Zones, and you start to see there's a pattern to this. Humans didn't eat a ton of meat products, a ton of animal products. They ate predominantly a vegetarian-based diet. Lots and lots of vegetables, fruits, nuts, beans, seeds, roots, and then spiked that with good quality fish, good quality meats. It wasn't a day-to-day, -day, three times a day meal situation where there was lots of animal proteins. And I think that has a lot of downstream effects on the environment. When we think about what happens when we mass produce animals and the waste, you think about hog farms in North Carolina, uh, methane released from cows, uh, the chicken waste, uh, the nightmare, if you watch the Food Inc. movie, I mean, quite incredible. So there's a lot to be said about animals and how we consume them, the husbandry. I think there's problems there. We're not going to get into it in this conversation, but I think it's very clear that humans have eaten meat for a long time. We should continue to eat meat in moderation, fish more commonly, and that makes sense to me. I truly appreciate Dr. Pobiner and her work and her ability to look back in the past to give us data points to understand. And that, frankly, is all that matters. We can choose after that to make our own decisions as ends of one, ends of family, ends of a group, ends of society. That's all up to us. And again, I'm not saying that humans can't choose to be vegan or vegetarian. I think that's their choice. But I am a big fan of looking back in the past to decide the present and the future. And I, for one, think consuming animal meats makes a lot of sense. Again, just my opinion. That being said, what a fabulous conversation with a fabulous researcher. 
and I appreciate her time and your time. As always, hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the formation of the provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.